profound profound place to start so one of the most thrilling and most meaningful statements in perhaps all of spiritual literature is tattva masi we find it in the chandogya upanishad the father says to the child tattva masi shweta ketu see the father is giving this very lofty discourse on the absolute reality the paramatman supreme that atma tattva the reality of the self and the boy you know he's like a teenager is wondering oh, why is my dad lecturing me you know i want to go out and play or something so finally the dad grounds it all home and he says look tattva masi i'm talking about you this quiescent ground of all being in which things come and go the mother of all things that's you right now right here it's the fundamental reality of who you are and of course the boy that's a profound moment when he realizes that 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 referring to the absolute principle of reality brahman beyond mind beyond speech beyond thought beyond time space and causality the foundational reality of all things transcendent and immanent that one god the goal that we're all seeking is here and now all the time me effortlessly so immediately so i am that brahman now if you are a bhakta this is very good news because it means god can never run away from you you'd say to the gopis don't worry god is um in quite a pickle here because nothing you can do will ever cause god to leave you right because god is you so you can sit in front of the altar and look at god and say i have you right where i want you there's nothing you can do now you're a prisoner because you are my fundamental nature wherever i go there too you are so for a bhakta it's a thrilling statement tattva masi that god which i am seeking which i want to come face to face with which is the goal of my quest that one is sitting right here right now as the one who is questing that's a wonderful thing to realize as a bhakta i am that divine see shram krishna see the picture of yourself in the screen no difference no difference i could do a puja to that picture i could do a puja to this person there is no difference whatsoever between that and this for one alone exists and that thou art shweta ketu so it's wonderful for a bhakta it's amazing for a karma yogi so karma yogi this is the foundation upon which they do karma yoga right you can't serve others as god unless you first realize that everyone is god so once you recognize i am god and only god exists then you plunge into to work dynamically and actively but in this tranquil calm serene way of serving god of worshiping god right so karma yoga is empowered by that statement tatvamasi now to say nothing of raja yoga meditation i would argue meditation is about close to impossible without some sort of realization like this because if you sit down as a body mind personality and try to meditate it'll be very difficult you'll be thinking of is a body mind has so many problems it's got children right it's got a uh, mortgage it's got job if you really think you are this body mind meditation is very difficult because when you sit there you'll just be thinking about all those other things in the life that need to be it's very difficult to meditate as a body mind but if you sit there and in the beginning of your meditation you're affirmed in your identity as that one upon which the entire universe is birthed and 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 extinguished then suddenly you get this vastness where your your own life seems so insignificant and small compared to the grandeur of your being then notice meditation becomes natural right okay so what i want to talk about today before we do postural yoga is where does raja yoga fit into all of this especially we're talking about like tattva masi that thou art shweta ketu how does it help me realize that and more importantly what's its role post realization so to talk a little bit about gyana realization i want to maybe just for fun 
explore what such a realization feels like. We have testimonies, of course, from great masters like Sri Ramakrishna. And maybe somewhat frustratingly, Sri Ramakrishna first and foremost says, what this is cannot be described. Right? <laughs> Knowledge of Brahman cannot be described. It's beyond speech. So use the phrase, uchishta. I'll put it in the chat, uchishta. It means, it's like a, it's a Bengali and also a Sanskrit phrase. It means when things have been defiled by the tongue. It's like, okay, say um, I have a lollipop and I don't want my sister to, to, to take the lollipops. So and then I put it aside. Now she won't take it because I've already like salivated it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what it means. Uchishta. It's like, you don't want to touch something that someone is just like. So Sri Ramakrishna very evocatively says the tantras, the Puranas, the Vedas, what they teach is in some sense defiled because it's been spoken by the tongue and therefore it's been crammed into the confines of language. It's not the truth. The truth is beyond all speech. It's a very Buddhistic statement, right? So you can see the Buddha and Judaic traditions, they have this notion that God, to say anything of God would be to say too much. To, to, to make an idol of God, actually, to say anything about that, which is silence itself, you know? So that, that's an important point. And Sri Ramakrishna, once he says that, though, importantly, he's not saying that it cannot be experienced. Sometimes, you know, people come to this conclusion because it cannot be spoken of, therefore it cannot be experienced, therefore it's not real. Far from it. Sri Ramakrishna is constantly established in the experience of that which he cannot describe in words. But it's not for lack of trying. I mean, the whole of the gospel is his love letter to us from that place, from that experience, right? So he then goes on to say, what it's like is ghee. But you can't describe ghee except in terms of itself. So if you say, uh, what is the taste of ghee? You'll say, ghee tastes like ghee, <laughs> right? So that's another way. He first starts and says, Uchishta, you can't describe it. But if you ask him to say, there's a taste, there's a feeling, there's a quality. Just for fun, you'll say, it's like ghee. But if you ask me what ghee tastes like, and you yourself have never tasted ghee, what can I say but it tastes like ghee? Right? That's another problem here with um, describing the absolute experience. It is an experience in the sense that you can be abidingly in it and, and, and say that it has a taste, a ruchi, a rasa. So it's a very important point. Some people say it, there's no experience there, right? Because there, there's no knower, there's no knowing, there's no known. You don't exist anymore. Thou canst not look upon the face of God and live. So that might lead you to think that there is no flavor or taste in being sugar. And you say, oh, why would I want that? I want to taste sugar, not be sugar, right? But no, he's saying here in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, established in the ultimate nature of the self, there's a taste, but he can't describe that taste. It's like trying to describe a color that no one's ever seen, right? That's another problem. Okay, he could have stopped there. You know, if he had stopped with Uchishta, he would be like a Buddhist, a classical Theravadan Buddhist, or like someone in the Jewish tradition. Uchishta, I don't have any words for it. Um, but the danger of that is it leads you to believe that therefore it's not something that can be experienced. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but um, ghee, ghee has a rasa. Come, come. Ghee has a rasa. Ghee has a taste, right? But it's an indescribable taste. So now I have to ask the question, is it even worthwhile to like, you know, preface our Hatha yoga class today with an exploration as to what Brahmagyana feels like. Already Sri Ramakrishna said it's either indescribable or its flavor doesn't compare to any other flavor. So what can we do? But he doesn't stop there. It's a beautiful thing. He gives a whole tier of responses to, to this question. He then says, now imagine you're a fish inside a jar of water. Then you put the jar of water in the ocean and the fish escapes the limited confines of the jar. Imagine that joy the joy that the fish feels that it's now like in the ocean. Then he gives another parable. Imagine there's an ocean, I'm oh, sorry, a jar filled with water. 
So many jars. We love pots in India. Then you take that jar filled with water and you put it in an ocean. Now water is all around. Water is inside. On all sides, water. Water within, water without. Now, of course, the water is consciousness. It's chidakasha. So the jar here, he, he says, Ramakrishna says, is the eye sense, the ego. It's like the body-mind personality complex. That's the jar. Now inside the jar, I am. But outside the jar also, I am. As long as I have a sense of I, I'm going to have a sense of inside and outside, me and them, right? Self and not self. But imagine in Samadhi, you're plunged into the ocean and you feel yourself everywhere and within as well. And then even that jar, you could see the water going in through the pores and maybe one day the jar dissolves and then you're the fish released. So notice, even though he says it's indescribable, he describes it in copious terms, like a fish free in the water. Um, he, he says, imagine a bird soaring in the sky. The sky is chid akasha, the sky of consciousness. And that bird is soaring happily in the sky. He says, that's what the Atman, the self, feels like in that state you know is that beautiful there are these descriptions now i thought just for fun let me offer maybe a few other ways to look at it now haven't you ever had like a big problem in your life like maybe maybe debt say you had some debt and then suddenly one day you were forgiven of that debt haven't you had that feeling isn't there like a tremendous upsurge of joy you're like oh my god this problem that's bothered me my whole life is no longer a problem you know, or like when you paid off yesterday, you're like, I'm done, I'm free. Okay, that's one. Just like note that experience, okay? Now also note the experience of, okay, say you're really busy or, or there is something that you have to do later today and you don't want to do it. It's, it's weighing on you. It's like, a, like an appointment or a meeting that you just can't quite stomach. Um, and then, you know, you're going about your day and early in the morning, you look at your phone and the person cancels. Suddenly, huh? yeah, right? It's like the best. Suddenly the whole day is free. Haven't you felt that? The feeling of a day suddenly becoming free? What about a week? Like say you're like a teacher, right? Megan, you're a teacher. And then you realize, oh, now I, I broke. Oh, you say, oh, I'm free. I'm the whole summer. I don't have to, you know, it's not a wonderful feeling. Okay. So basically I'm saying this experience of Brahmagyana, this experience of being not the mind, not the body, that's in some sense akin to this times a million, right? But it's that same idea, that same feeling of having a limitation and then no longer being limited by it. You know, the feeling of having a free week, the feeling of having all your debt forgiven, the feeling of all your problems being solved. It's a wonderful thing, right? But there's something else. Now in the Chandogya, no, sorry, Birhat Aranyaka Upanishad, there's that phrase, Nalpe Sukamasti, Bhumhaiva Sukam, or Yovai Bhuma Tat Sukam, Yovai Bhuma, that which is vast alone is joy. There's no joy in small things, Nalpe Sukamasti, there's no joy in the limited. Bhumhaiva. Sukham. Only in the vast is there joy. Okay. Now, that example of the bird in the sky or the fish in the ocean, notice they're all examples about vastness, about transcendence, about being immersed in the absolute unlimited nature of self. So far from just being free from your problems, which is a kind of nirvana, a negative joy, there's a positive joy too. The joy of limitlessness in and of itself. Now think of every joy you've ever had in the world, like an orgasm. That's the joy of release, the release from the limitations of the desire, the joy of chocolate or something. That's all a joy of release. Now imagine that times a million. So it's, it's important that we don't rarefy these states. They're present actually in each and every one of our lives. We do have a glimpse as to what, what that uh, feeling state could be, right? So I just want to like, I want to whet your appetite with the taste of ghee for a moment. So the reason why I want to have this discussion is because last night, Tejas Ma and I, we had the fortune of listening to Swami Sarpananda and Swami Sarpananda in his lecture said something very 
very profound. And I've been reflecting on it uh, quite a bit since last night. And it's this. He had a dream. And we woke up. His, the first thing that he did, as he, as he said, automatically was to recite the um, contemplating Brahma at dawn. You know, the Prata Smarana Stotram. It's an Adi Shankaracharya hymn. So he woke up. And immediately, the first thing he did when he woke up from the dream in the middle of the night um, was, you know, Tad Brahma Nishkalam Maham Nacha Bhuta Sangha. You know, it it, just, it came just immediately. Pratasmarami. You know, just he just started chanting it, and he said he'd been chanting it for a while. So his practice is to first thing in the morning start chanting that sutram. It's a very very simple. There's three verses, very simple Sanskrit. It's actually good for people learning Sanskrit to start with Adi Shankara because he's a 16 year old boy. So he writes very profound things, but in such simple ways. So it starts with prata uh, smarami, I remember, or uh, I prefer the word pratyabhikya. I recognize that I am Brahman, samspurat atma tattvam. I recognize that in my heart, hridi, I am that self shining, that tureyam, the fourth, which is the goal of all the paramahamsas, that which is consciousness, bliss, absolute, which is the witness eternally of the knower, uh, uh, sorry, of the waking, dreaming, deep sleep, that formless, that uh, partless or uh, indivisible Brahman, that alone am I. You know, so he, the first thing he does when he wakes up is sing that to himself. And I was thinking, that's a practice. That's a chanting practice. Like he woke up in the morning and he did a chanting practice to reaffirm his identity as Paramatman Supreme, as Brahman, right? I was thinking about that. Then I was also thinking about Totapuri. So Totapuri would meditate every day for insane numbers of hours. Like he would, he would always be in med- he would regularly be in Samadhi. And remember, he's a Jnani. He's on the path of Jnana Yoga. But here he's doing Raja Yoga. He's meditating. So people would ask him, why meditate? Meditation is for the mind. But you're established in that which is beyond the mind, right? You're Paramatman Supreme. You're, you're Brahman. So why does Brahman need to meditate? Knowing that, aren't you beyond all practices like this? And he said something very evocative. He said, um, if you don't scrub the copper pot, it will lose its shine and then it will no longer reflect. Very important point. See, he's saying that if the mind is not kept sattvic through regular meditation, it will lose touch with the truth of being Brahman. Though being Brahman doesn't change, the ability to enjoy Brahman might be affected by a lack of meditation. So he meditated every day, right? So here's what I want to say. There's a very important role that sadhana plays in the path of non-duality and non-dual realization. First, it plays the role of opening you up to that recognition in the first place. Everyone is Brahman, but not everyone lives like Brahman. So I think you would bring to mind here Jesus, how Jesus moved about in the world. You know, just from our recollection of him, it feels as if this was a person who was truly free. He loved everyone. He had no hangups, no qualms, except with hypocrisy, you know. Um, And he moved through the world like you would expect a breeze to blow through the town. It clings to nothing. It's fragrant. It's melodious. It's joyful. It's whistling and singing. Just comes and goes. No big deal. You know, Sri Ramakrishna, they said of him, a bowel came and went. A bowel, you know, a bowel means the singing uh, devotee of Krishna like that. So Jesus, Buddha, they were such light beings. Beings of light. Beings that were so light. They came and they went and they uplifted the whole world. And even today we speak of them. Those who lived, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, we still speak of them. Is that, is that wonderful? What a, what a huge amount of Shakti they had. And if you, you know, come to the temple when Swami Saraprinandaji is there, you'll see there's, you'll see such a mart of joy, right? It's a Maja Kuti, as Ram Krishna would say. It's like everyone is celebrating. There's so many people and, you know, people will be peeking through the door 
And uh, whenever you're having a concert, there's always an audience around like, and, and most of these people, I, a lot of times they're not interested really in what's being said. I don't think because they're just there to experience the Shakti of them. This is very beautiful. The, the beings that are very light, you know, tend to have this uplifting effect. So what's the role of sadhana then? Notice Jesus, Buddha, Ramakrishna, these beings are established in that nature. When Totapuri gave the um, metaphor of the bronze vessel, you know what Ramakrishna said? You don't have to polish it if the vessel is gold. Mm. It's interesting. He's comparing two different kinds of beings. There's an Ishvara Koti or um, you know, an Avatara. And then there's all of us, the Jiva Kotis or the practitioners. Now, we need a lot of polishing because our copper pot is brass. Their copper pot is gold. But notice who they are and who we are are the same. You know, this don't, don't think, oh, I'm a brass copper pot, they're a gold copper. No, no, no. This gold brass thing just refers to the instrument, the instrument of the body and mind, which has nothing to do with who you are. You are all bodies, all minds, and so much more beyond that, right? So he's, the, Sri Ramakrishna is saying there are certain beings who can be established like that. They don't need a lot of practice. However, we do. And so I want to ask this question, what's the role of Hatha Yoga in this path? First, as I've said earlier, it is about opening yourself up to the recognition of what is already true. Though everyone is Brahman, not everyone moves about like Jesus or Ramakrishna or Swami Sarvapranadaji, right? <laughs> not everyone lives in this world in a, in, a, in a light and joyous way as that. But everyone is Brahman, no? So then why, why isn't that manifested each and every person's life? Well, because not everyone knows they're Brahman. So Brahma Jnana is an important. It's not about being Brahman. It's about knowing that you're Brahman. And knowing that you're Brahman helps you manifest your identity as Brahman. So therefore, in the Mundaka, it says, Brahma Veda Brahmeva Bhavati. To know Brahman is to be Brahman. You always were Brahman, right? So what does knowing, it, 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 it's, it's not about being Brahman. It's about manifesting that divinity in each and every movement. So how to know? Through practices. So when you do practices like Japa, Japa meditation, when you do your pujas, when you do these intensely with full faith and devotion, and when you practice Hatha Yoga, when you meditate regularly, your pot, your brass pot becomes so shiny so sattvic that it constantly reflects to you your true nature. Haven't you felt that when your mind was lifted and then the problems of the world didn't seem like problems? Sometimes on drugs, we feel we're like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in such a high state and nothing matters. Like that, through practice, the mind goes up like that. But be very careful, it easily drops. It can drop like this the next moment. Like the very next moment, you could be in this lofty realm in which you don't feel your problems. And you're established in your nature as Brahman, your eyes are shining. Next moment, just like that, it'll drop, right? The, it's, it's, it seems like for most of us, it's not very stable. So the first step in sadhana is achieving the clarity to know that you are Brahman. The next step in sadhana is maintaining that clarity. That's it. That's all there is to sadhana. You're already Brahman, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you want to be or not. Sorry, Megan, you're already the mother of the universe. Nothing we can do about that. Um, now the only question is, are you going to live like that? or um, are we going to suffer as body, minds, personality? It's wonderful too. But if you resolve to live as a Brahmagyani, then it's very important that you see practice not just as a way to like have the clarity that you are that, but more importantly, I would say, having had that clarity, clarity through your Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, to stabilize in that. So therefore, I come now to a very important point. We belong to what is called the Yoga Vedanta tradition. Now, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. There are Vedanta traditions that don't require practice, like Dayananda Saraswati. There's a big movement in India of what you can call like orthodox Kevala Advaita Shankara Vedanta, where, you know, meditation is in some sense a lower practice. 
At a certain point, you have to give it up and just do shravana, listening, manana, thinking, nididhyasana, like that. And by the way, these practices, according to these people, can reify your notion of what you're not. I don't need to, I'm Brahman, why should I practice? But if I think I have to practice, then that's me admitting that I'm not Brahman. So I don't want you to get the idea that, oh, it's just this. No, no, there are Vedanta traditions that are very against practice. However, Sri Ramakrishna and this lineage, we belong to what is typically called the Yoga Vedanta tradition because Tottapuri, et cetera, right? So the Yoga Vedanta tradition is one where it, um, it 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 has a very important place for samadhi. Samadhi being the experience of yourself as Brahman in meditation. It's very important. So Sri Ramakrishna, if you see in the Katamrita, the gospel, he often, in some places, uses the same word interchangeably. Samadhi, Nirvikapa Samadhi, and Brahmagyana. Haven't you noticed? But there are many Brahmagyanis who will say it's not about Samadhi. Brahmagyana can happen Samadhi or no. All you need is waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. But Sri Ramakrishna values Samadhi. He thinks that it's there only when you're on the roof. And post-samadhi, the world becomes mojarkuti. Prior to samadhi, it's a framework of illusion. And so before you know the truth, it's neti-neti. After you know the truth, it's iti-iti. Now, I know that sounded a bit technical, um, but all I mean to say is that samadhi is very important. Yoga is very important. Meditation is very important. Okay, But please, friends, let's not forget why it's important. It's not important for any other reason than for you to enjoy being what you already are. So today, I'm just saying what I said last week in a new way. Relax, you're not here to practice. You're not here to attain anything. You're not here to do anything important whatsoever. You're here to simply express and enjoy what is already true here and now. You are the mother of the universe. What more is there than saying this, affirming this? Okay. Okay. I know this is taking a bit of time, but one last thing I want to say before we practice is this. Even before you are sure about your true nature as Brahman, long before that, it will do you a lot of good to affirm that you are. Right? Now, this sounds like a stark contradiction to what Sri Ramakrishna said. <laughs> He's like, you, householders should not say this. Uh, you shouldn't say this if you have body consciousness. That's true. I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy that can come, a lot of self-delusion. But you know what? As Swami Ashokanandaji said, if you think thoughts all the time anyway, you might as well think strengthening, empowering, positive thoughts. Because if you don't, you'll just think you're a sinner, a weakling. And Now, think of this. Spiritual life requires so much strength. Where will you get that strength if not from this bold affirmation of your true nature as Paramatman Supreme? Unless you, you, even if you don't feel that to be true, unless you speak this way and live this way and affirm to yourself this truth, it's very unlikely that you will have the strength even to persevere to the, through the difficult things in spiritual life. So long before I would say you have the realization, still, why not? If it's already true, why not speak according to the truth? If your reason has showed you that you are Paramatman Supreme, then own it. And it won't do, of course, to like have your behavior disagree with your um, realization. But in this period of sadhana, we're going to bring our realization and our behavior together. So today, when we do a, a standing balancing pose, um, we'll do a few of them. If you feel any challenge in the posture at all, quickly remind yourself, who am I? I am that. I am Paramatman Supreme. Why should this posture scare me? Why should, you know, we're doing headstand. So why should this posture scare me? Why should I feel um, upset if I didn't get the shape right? Or what, what? This is just the body and mind. What's it to me? Okay, I think that's all I, I mean to say on the subject. So the yoga Vedanta tradition, it's very important that we practice. Hatha yoga, postural yoga is part of the wider tradition called Raja yoga. And it's for establishing a deep experience in meditation. Okay, all right, so let's start. So we'll start with a seated pose and um, we'll take an opening mantra. In fact, let me just start a new recording for that because I think this, this conversation itself should just be kind of cordoned off. <laughs> um, okay. 